It's four o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live! Woohoo! Today's episode starring legendary producer, producer, Mr. Ken Calais. Yeah, baby, I'm excited about this show. Woohoo! And thank you, fake band. They were a little loud today. Thank you, fake audience. And let's see who's in that chat room. I was already in there earlier. Wow, big crowd showing up today. And we've been hanging out talking about Scotland and Outlander for the last five or ten minutes. Uh, let's see, we've got Bob Gunnerfeld, Ian Shortfell, Ian Shortall, uh, J.C. Amity, Lauren Smith, Dale Markley, Herman Kelly, Rick Cabot, Podmore, Spiritual, John Pearson, and House, Russell Landwehr. Chuck Erling, Nancy Collel, uh, Andre Stepanian, John Pearson, Greg Carosa, Dean Turner, Pierre Venio, Steve Frisch, Rainy Bear, Wind Chimes, Michael McGraw, Darren Fletcher, Marion Laird, Pete Mason, Rose Winters, Alex Dillon, Jan Wilage, Darren Moss, The World of Mick. Maybe is it Mick Fleetwood showing up because he wants to ask a question of our esteemed guest today? Uh, let's see, Dave Friedland, Ron Svoboda, Dave Barnett, uh, Glenn Letts, Martin Frog, Carl Wurzbach, Richard Carr, Daryl Berman, uh, Wendelin Landers, Jesse J. Peck, Peter Rahill, Alan McCool, wow. Lots of peeps, Jerry Jennings, Bob LaGrasso, Patrick Adams, Jettison Bloom. Is that what happens when a, f a flower falls off uh, the stem? It's jettisoning the bloom? <laughs> oh, man. Bad humor. Anyway, I am really excited today. Um, hello, Ulysses Carter. I'm very excited to have Ken Calais join us on the show. Um, I'm going to give him a call in a minute or two and then read his bio once he's on the show and we will get started. Um, let's see, is there anything I needed to tell you guys before we start? Not really. Uh, <laughs> Darren Moss says, I'm actually Mick Fleetwood. I've been deep undercover as this Darren Moss loser for months. <laughs> I don't know if I'd call you a loser. Uh, hello, Jim Stamper. Keith Sumner, how are you? Letting go of our creations. There you go. Anyway, all right. Um, two more minutes. I told Ken I'd call him at 4.05. Hello, Dan Weber. Yeah, those are, John Pearson says, thanks for the great listings from the independent film producer. Yeah, this guy, I, excuse me, I want to say 10 months ago, ran a bunch of listings with us and a bunch of taxi members. Actually, this one's not from the independent film producer. This one's from a music supervisor working on, uh, as far as independent films go, a fairly big budget independent film, not exactly blockbuster budget, but, you know, better than the like half million to million dollar budget ones. Um, and he was so enthusiastic 
about getting all that great music for the last film that he worked on, that he came back and literally is using Taxi, I think, for every available slot. He may be reaching out to other resources as well, but um, we're very excited uh, and glad that he came back. Literally, every single time people working on indie films use Taxi, they always say the same thing, which is, wow, I had no idea. This is like the greatest resource ever and inevitably they all come back. Um, producers only do like a film every two or three years, so they don't come back as often as we would like, but that's, you know, they come back whenever they've got a film. But a music supervisor um, can come back more frequently than that, so we're really excited this gentleman came back. Um, hello, Paul Rickert, Lamar Pecorino, um, Horace Mix. Have a nice episode. Why, thank you, Robert Orzachowski. Um, all right, let's call Ken and hope we get a nice connection. Where did he go? There he is. Hello. How are you, Ken? Good. I just realized I left my headset in my car. Do you want to go grab it? I can entertain the folks if you need a minute. Yeah, I think so. That way I can walk in and pace. Okay. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll take me one minute to go out and get the mask. All right. I'll entertain him. All right. No problem. I'll be right here. Thanks. you want me to hang up or not? Nah. You can leave it on. Okay. Ken's walking to his car. To get his headset. Uh, Darren Moss says, let the man pace. Absolutely. Hello, Mark Real. How are you? Um, yeah, I've got uh, an intro to do for Ken. Um, and then I want to ask him some very thoughtful questions that I crafted. Maybe too many. I don't know. We'll see how many questions you guys have, but uh, I think this is going to be a great episode. He's always a pleasure to speak with, has great advice. Pete Mason says, sing us a song. No, uh, everybody would hang up and go away. <laughs> I'm pretty good with background vocals, um, but that's about it. J.C. Hamity says, for the longest time, I thought Fleetwood Mac was a dude. Technically, it's two dudes, Mick Fleetwood and John McVie. Nancy says she just sent in for her first taxi custom critique. Oh, that's right. There's a hurricane. Where's it at today? I haven't uh, watched the news yet today. I know, I saw Peter Green sadly passed away, it was like a week or so ago, a couple weeks ago. Hello, Mojo Bone and L. Harrison, good to see you here. Ooh, Darren Moss got the SSL plug-in pack for Apollo Twin, it sounds cool, I'll bet it does. 
Hello, Dean Crepain, how are you? I'm waiting. I, I think Ken got kidnapped on the way to his car. Um, by the way, for those of you who were on the show last week with Rob Shirelli and downloaded uh, his stuff, I got an email yesterday from a dear friend of mine in New York who has been a big deal guy in the uh, music for advertising business for a long time. He's also an engineer. Hello, good morning. Hello, how are you, Ken? Good. Good. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for taking the time. Um, uh, well, thanks for asking me. Uh, I always uh, love hanging out with you, whether we have an audience or not. <laughs> um, I also, before I, I get into the questions with you, I want to read this bio and then hold up a copy of Get Tusked, which I just happen to have here at the house. Um, unfortunately, I don't have a copy of Making Rumors at the house, but I want to tell everybody, if you haven't read those books, buy them. I promise you, you will not be able to put them down. It, it's so behind the scenes. Uh, in such great detail that Ken gives on the making of those two records that you'll love every minute of it. All right, so the bio is, Ken Calais is best known for co-producing and engineering the Fleetwood Mac albums Rumors, Tusk, Mirage, Live, and the Chain box set. He's also produced his daughter Colby Calais' albums Coco, Breakthrough, All of You, and Christmas in the Sand. He's also, and this is the short list, also worked on albums with Billy Idol, Frank Sinatra, Paul McCartney, Pink Floyd, Michael Jackson, Pat Benatar, Wilson Phillips, The Beach Boys, Herbie Hancock, David Becker, and Alice Cooper, as well as doing a solo album on uh, a solo record with Christine McVie. And once again, that is the short list. Uh, when you have a chance, check out his gazillion credits on allmusic.com. Uh, here's an interesting factoid for you Taxi members, which is Ken actually produced Robin Frederick's record on Higher Octave Records in 1992, and they've been friends for, I don't know, 30 years or something. Um, Ken's recordings have sold over 50 million copies. His record production and engineering efforts have earned him numerous Grammy nominations, including Best Engineered Album, and he won the coveted Album of the Year Grammy for Rumors. He's also the CEO of Artist Max, which specializes in artist development. He's also embarked on a personal mission to purchase the record plant Sausalito, where much of Rumors was recorded, and he's restoring that incredible studio to its former glory and turning it back into a working studio. I can't wait to see the restoration when it's done. He also has a studio here in Los Angeles where he regularly works with established artists and new talent. He's currently setting it up to do live in-studio broadcasts, which I'm sure Taxi will be using for some member showcases in the relatively near future. Ken and I have developed a great friendship over the last year, and there's nothing the two of us enjoy more than talking about studios, gear, engineering, and production. So that's what we're going to do today. Uh, we already covered the making of rumors at last year's Road Rally, and that was the hit of the entire weekend. Uh, we did a Taxi TV like two days before we all got quarantined. We did um a taxi tv at ken's studio and at that one we talked about the book get tusked um so i'd like to start uh today talking a bit about uh ken producing his daughter colby's records that's something we haven't really spent much time on 
and then spend the rest of the show with viewers asking Ken about engineering, production, favorite gear, and that kind of stuff. So I want to know, Ken, I, I don't think I've ever asked you this, uh, even in our private conversations, are you the type of producer who brings your own signature sound and style to the records you work on, or do you work to enhance what the artist is already doing? I don't know how to answer that. Okay, next question. I, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, really? Uh, I mean, I, I try not to, I mean, I don't make them sound like Pink Floyd if they don't sound like Pink Floyd already. Right. But I take I take whatever they are and make it like on steroids. Okay, so, so that's I try good. To, with my daughter, I tried to get, get her songs all in the, in the best key that she would sing in and use the best mics on her, but I don't really change too much. Other than that, yeah, so, yeah I, I don't, don't know how to answer. All right, well, yeah, I know, you know, some, some producers, almost every artist they work on sounds, you can hear the producer's influence. Richard Perry is a guy from back in the day that um, comes to mind when I think of that. And uh, I have a feeling that, uh, yeah, you're kind of a... Uh, I, I, think, I think you can hear my sound on every one of the records. I think Colby sounds a little bit like Fleetwood Mac because I, you know, I tend to balance the rhythm section the same way. Uh, you know, and Fleetwood Mac, um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I just I hear seeing things a certain way, and I try to make them, uh, I put them into that box if I, because it makes me feel good. Right, <laughs> and if so, you're not feeling good about the record, it just won't come out well. Right. Um, do you spend much time on pre-production and if so what does that entail and that's just generally not necessarily about colby although i'm going to talk to you about her pre-production in a moment so typically when you start a record do you do like a week or a month or something in pre-production with the act or or not yeah i usually do i like to try to, to you know in private time kind of take the disassemble the the uh the songs and see what they're made of and so I know what was driving the artist at the particular moment, and then try to uh, build on the on the strengths of the uh, what they already have. Um, if you hear a song that you think shouldn't go on the record, uh, and you say to the band, "You know, this may not be your strongest song, or it doesn't fit well in the context of the other songs in this record." Um, how hard will you lobby to have that song not make it to that record, or do you let the artist have their way with their record? I'm pretty pretty adamant about it. If, if my name's going to go on it, I, I either try to fix whatever's wrong with it, and uh, or try not to uh, you know put it on the record. In the case of like Tusk, I couldn't do much about all the crappy uh, <laughs> Lindsay songs, so I tried to I tried to hide them. <laughs> this isn't easy uh, I'm telling you everybody watching this show today you've got to read this book because really it's um, it might be one of the most complicated stories about producing a record not complicated in that it's hard to understand but the whole time because I'd already met Ken and gotten to know him you know at the road rally stuff and I'm reading this book just laughing to myself going oh that poor man every day must have been like oh god what next <laughs> that's funny um, you know I've got some guy that uh, has been sending me uh, emails he said he just read the book he's a college professor here he is and uh, 
he's from Princeton, and uh, he's a he wanted to know all these extra little tidbits after after reading my book. But he called my book a uh, uh, page turner, a I real think, page turner. I've never heard anybody call me that. I, I think it is as well. I remember when you told me that Tusk was just about ready to come out. And you almost seem like slightly apologetic, like how could it possibly be as good as Making Rumors was? And I think my comment to you after I read it was, I loved it every bit as much as Making Rumors, maybe even slightly more because uh, Making Rumors had a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the personality stuff, a lot of the relationship stuff woven into it. And while that stuff certainly comes into play in Getting Tusk, um, Lindsay is obviously the big, big story in this book. And just from any engineer producer's perspective, you, you just have to feel sorry for you because you never knew what was going to walk in that door the next day and it never got better it just seems like it kept getting worse but you persevered and ended up making a great record regardless of that true yeah it did it just kept getting worse and worse <laughs> i know you know and, and i think i told you before the last time we were on i felt like it was almost some sort of an abuse right <laughs> you know because either take it or you leave which so, you know you don't want to do that um but I, I felt it was, it, it was, it was, and, and we were all in that book. I mean, the whole band was sitting there uh, held hostage with Lindsay. Uh, um, do you think so, that there was any lobbying, uh, you know, behind the scenes that you guys in the studio weren't aware of? I, I know Mick was like the, well, he and John co-managed the band and Mick was certainly like the godfather or the dad in the band. Do you think there were times that Mick went over to Lindsay's house and said, what the hell are you doing? I do. Cause I, I actually, I later found out that he had, he had done an interview where he said, Lindsay, you know, you can only push the fans so far. You can take them to the edge of Fleetwood Macism and then they're going to, they're going to bail out. You can, there's only so much you can take, you can do and experiment with. And he basically told them that, be careful. Well, so. it sounds like he listened for a minute. <laughs> right. Whatever he said, whenever that was, he probably drew the line in the sand there. Said, "Okay, I'm not going to go past this." I don't know. It was, it was the worst album I ever did. Uh, but it, to me, for somebody to tell me that was a, they liked the album, the book better than Rumors, I think it's great because I I really like the Rumors book. Oh, I loved it, and I was expecting this one to be just not quite as good because you kind of inferred that uh, in one of our conversations. And when I read it, I, I remember at least a half a dozen times I'm thinking, man, I it was always late at night. Otherwise, I would have picked up the phone to call you and say, Ken, you're nuts, man. This book is every bit as good and in some regards even better because it tells the story of the struggle that all producers share just very few people have ever experienced the struggle on the level that you did so i think any of us who've ever had to play psychologist and babysitter in a studio we're just you know wanting to hug you constantly <laughs> uh, i'm sorry you cut out for a second there 
Oh, okay. I was just saying something that babysitter or something. Yeah, that everybody who's ever been in in the chair behind the console producing a record or engineering a record, you know, especially with a, a problematic act, can relate to what you went through. But you went through it on a level that I think very few other people ever will. So you know, hats off to you for uh, either. Uh, I guess it was a persevering is the right word but putting up with the abuse for the greater good is probably a, a better way to look at it because you you love that band and you wanted to make a great record and, and the great thing was they let me do i was a complete artist uh, a sonic artist they let me do whatever i wanted to do and i was really good at uh, combining microphones and doing tricks and and they loved it and that's what i love doing so you know which which actually i was working Lindsay was I was working against Lindsay at the, that point when I was trying so hard to make the sounds amazing and he's like no make it sound crappier right I remember that um Colby grew up obviously in a musical household where I'm sure that right. you had uh you know artists over for barbecues and you talked about music and records and the artists you were working with at the dinner table all the all the time at what point did Colby first express an interest in becoming a, a singer-songwriter? Well, I don't know if she ever did, but, but you know, she, from five years old, she learned to play the xylophone and just a little baby, and she just, you know, kept singing, kept doing things, and then uh, I, you know, I got her some vocal lessons, and uh, and she was just singing all the time around the house, and I think I told you that I, I was doing this a record with a guy named Michael Blue, and we were, we were working on vocals this one week, and I said, Colby, why don't you come down and sing on a real microphone here, what your voice sounds like on, on on microphone and with a little reverb on it. And she said, okay. And she came down and she blew us all away, just, just singing like that. Wow. It was amazing. So that was the first time she just knew, I think she knew the first time she got on a microphone that that's what she wanted to do. Uh, and, and how did she learn the craft of songwriting? I taught her that. Uh, I mean, I used to teach her what a bridge was and what a chorus was, what a verse was, the relationship of choruses to verses, and the relationship of bridges to all the everything else. And uh, and uh, I told her that, I told her, Colby, you need to learn to play an instrument. Because I promise you, when you play a chord, your heart's going to out, reach out through your through your vocal cords, and you're going to sing this most amazing thing. And uh, I said, I promise. And she did. You know, I've got to say, that record, at the time that um, Coco came out, let me read you a list of other stuff that was big on the charts that year. Uh, Irreplaceable by Beyonce, Umbrella, Rihanna featuring Jay-Z, um, Sweet Escape with Gwen Stefani featuring Akon, um, Big Girls Don't Cry, Fergie, Buy You a Drink, uh, T-Pain featuring Young Joe, uh, Before He Cheats, Carrie Underwood, Hey There, Delilah by The Plain White Tees, I Want to Love You, Akon featuring Snoop Dogg. Um, you get the idea. And, and it was, I remember when her record came out thinking, wow, that's a pretty gutsy move. And I was very happy to see it that here's a, a strummy, poppy singer-songwriter coming out in, with a record that was true to form for her, I, I would guess, as an artist, when everybody else was kind of going in the direction of 
urban pop. Um, was that... she, didn't, she didn't have any choice, I don't think. She, she ended up hooking up. I, my wife and I were on vacation remodeling a condo in Hawaii, and we were gone almost five months. And she was staying, my, my older sister, my older daughter was kind of taking care of her, and uh, this uh, manager put this young uh, writer, Jason Reeves, in the house with Colby, and they, that's all they did is wrote strummy songs. Wow. And, and they, they were very catchy, and one of Colby's uh, friends put her songs up on MySpace. And so, unbeknownst to all of us, she came up to me and said, Dad, you know, my MySpace songs are all getting going crazy, and attorneys are calling want me to sign a deal, and, and I said, what? <laughs> and yeah, she said, yeah, we're down, we have, a, I have 20 million followers, I said, what? Whoa. <laughs> it was whatever. She was the queen of, uh, she was on the cover of, uh, of what magazine would that have been? But they called her the queen of, of the digital. Wow, I had no idea. I've never heard that story before. That's pretty awesome. Um, so you're right. She, she had already created her signature sound and the world bought into it before you had a chance to help her figure out the direction. <laughs> right. I, so she came along and she said, I mean, I was, I did some of her, the songs in the studio. We were, we were, I was working with Michael Blue on building her songs up and we were trying to make them, you know, fit right, have the right form and things. But, but they were pretty much the way they were. In fact, the record company came over when she finally got the offer that from uh, Universal Republic, she got an offer that she couldn't refuse. And they said, we were not allowed to change anything about the songs what? i said yeah but we only have drum machines let's put real drums in nope you can't do it Which really just the opposite of any record company now they want they want you to change everything right you know the way they like it but they were they were adamant they finally gave gave in and let us uh, uh, replace some of the some drums but uh they they she, the fans were so so loving the music that they just didn't want us to rock the boat at all. I was wow. telling my wife last night that one of the first shows she did uh, after she got a manager was we went to uh, the House of Blues. And I'm standing in the back of the room and everybody's singing her songs. I mean, singing the lyrics. And I went, how is that possible? They, you know, she just, this is the first time she performed live. And I go up on stage and I'm looking out at behind Colby and and everybody was singing, literally, lips perfectly in sync with her vocals. Everybody was just... So somehow, it was mostly women, but I think there were guys in there that were trying to get the women. So, <laughs> anyway. Uh, but I was amazed that she had, she had a deep and profound impact and influence on everybody, any one of her listens, listeners. They all thought, they all thought she was, had the answer. She was... You know, had the had the pointing everybody in the right direction. I don't know, but I well, don't know how how it worked. But that must have been an incredible moment for you. I'm sure the lump in your throat was uh, pretty big, and probably a little tear in your eye. I mean, to see your kids standing up there having that much influence over her listening public, her fans, and uh, you know, singing right. along, man, doesn't get any better than that. That's what we're all after. So after uh, after that album came out. Um, Michael Blue decided he wanted 
uh, didn't want to go. He had, he couldn't go on and do the next record. So, and I was going, well, well. And uh, we walked, we, we went over with Colby and our manager to Capitol Records to look at uh, that studio. And I realized that I was going to hand it off to somebody else because I hadn't really done a record in a while. Yeah. And I looked and I said, hell no. I'm, I said, I told her, her manager, I said, Chad, I want to do this record. And how did he, how did he react? He, you know, I think he was fine. You know, I, I, at first I had to convince him that I was still somebody when I, when I was sort of mixing the, the, the singles on the first record. But then when I said it, and you know, I think I saw a bunch of engineers that I knew, then they said, okay. And, uh, then I was scared to death that I, that I might be her old fogey dad and my record, you know, record second record. Right. And I was worried about that. And I had pre-production up the yin yang with all the, uh, the bands and we tried to cut everything live because I wanted as much input from the professional musicians on the spot. And it turned out okay. That leads me to a question that I've got on my list. Um, given uh, the choice, would you rather work with a self-contained band like a Fleetwood Mac, although I realize they're an exceptional band, you know, almost everybody in the band is a world-class artist on their own, so it's like a super group. Um, so would you rather generally work with a self-contained band or would you rather have a, a solo artist like Colby where you get to build a band of session players that you pick and choose because of their particular talents? Well, that's a trick question. You know, I'd rather, I'd rather be a, work with a self-contained band uh, if the band's good, but I've, I've certainly worked with self-contained bands and I realized my friend Richard Dash had told me, you know, the art of being a good producer is knowing who to produce. Right. So obviously when you work with somebody like Fleetwood Mac, when you've got a world-class guitar player, bass player, drummer, singer, then it makes it pretty easy. So I think, and when I had when I did work with bands, I, I did replace them with uh, a different drummers, different bass players. I said, you know, I just said, sorry, you know, you want me to make this a good record or not? I got to replace you guys. So, but given that, I would either way I would replace the musicians, you know, and, and I'd go ahead and I would tell them that you know we're going to get a different going to get Vinnie Calrudo to, to play drums instead of you, <laughs> you loser. <laughs> yeah, you know, I once read a book called Difficult Conversations, how to, how to break bad news to people. And uh, as much as I enjoyed that book, I don't think it covered the severity of that conversation when you have to talk to somebody that's been in a band for seven years and say, I'm sorry, you're, you're the anchor on this record. You're pulling the whole thing underwater. That's a tough one. Um, to me, it's not tough. It's just, it's the facts. I mean, I look at it as just, that's the facts. And if I leave you in here, I'm not doing my job and you deserve to fire me. Right. If I let a, a ratty drum track go in, because the drums aren't great. They're the record's hard to, hard to survive that right so it's i'm just doing my job yeah wow. you know ultimately if i told the band we got to get rid of the drummer or it's not going to be a good record they're all going to boot him out yeah so, you know as long as it doesn't it's not a finan big financial impact for them to have this other drummer there you know and it's not really not if you have a real good drummer 
he's going to get the song in half the time that the other drummer would have done. So you're going to spend less on studio time and musician's time and everything. Yeah, but then you walk out of the studio at 3 a.m. and find all four tires on your car have been slashed. And guess who did it? The drummer. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think the drummer is going to be out there buying me a new car. Because <laughs> I'm going to make him sound good. He's going to go out. In fact, I've told him before. You're going to go out on the road and play the drums for the up for the album. But you're so everybody's going to think you're the drummer. There he goes. Right. So so in a good way, it's going to be better for him. Better for everybody. How do you feel about so many of today's records being built in the box? Uh, positive, negative, or neutral? Oh, uh, I. I mean, it's hard to say. I, I think that they are, there's obviously people who know how to make good records in the box. Um, what I'm planning to do in, in the Sausalito studio, I'm going to encourage people to get back in and play as a as a band, all all of you at the same time. Because like a, you know, the nice thing about if you're all playing at the same time, if the vocalist kind of slows down or or, or softens her volume. Everybody else can do it too. Whereas if that's done in the studio, nobody else does it, and the vocal only the vocalist did, and then you, everybody else has to remember to turn their vocals, their instruments, open or create some space for the artist. So, I mean, you know, what you can't, you got to say, hey, it's good for people. You know, a lot of people can uh, create a track somewhere else, and then uh, and then the vocalist comes in and does it. You add a couple guitars. It's uh, you know, it's it's about whether you're good, you're a good enough mixer to have it feel like it's a live performance, and maybe it doesn't even need to feel like that. It may it may need to be very poppy and uh, and uh, exciting. Uh, did, I, did I kind of give you a mixed message there? No, no, not at all. I mean, you. you ran the whole kind of gamut of emotions or range of emotions that I was thinking of when I wrote that question earlier today that, you know, nowadays, so many of the records kind of sound the same. It's like they're all at the same level. They all have a lack of dynamics. So many records have 808 kick drums on them. There are just so many similarities that I, and I've never worked on a record like that because I haven't done anything in the, you know, modern, you know, age of band in a box kind of stuff. So I always want to go back to doing a record with like as many pieces live in the room as I could get and then go back, touch it up and add guitar solos and what have you. But I also agree that there's um, a certain amount of uh, solidity. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, we all know that bass and drums, you know, are the the balls, the guts of any record. And, and doing it in the box, you know that that stuff is going to be rock solid, really Loctite, and gives a great platform for everybody else to build on. So I have mixed emotions about it as well. Yeah, I mean, I, if I'm doing like a guitar vocal and I get a demo from somebody and they've got a piano vocal or a guitar vocal, I mean, I that's fun because I can add the drums later on and make them the perfect drum kit, right? You know, but I, whereas, and then I could add strings or, or whatever emotional thing, and uh, you know, some sort of a flute. And but slowing it down a little bit like that, you can kind of, if you were doing, if you were doing it live, and you had the, and, and you, you might not have the access to strings or flute. So sometimes it's easier when you have it and you build it backwards. 
Um, but then again, that's me, you know, and I, you know, I tend to try to make it. It'll probably sound the same way either way with me. If you're going to use uh, drum software, do you have a, a particular brand or model or yeah that that you like? I mean, is there one that you use over and over? Or do you not use them very much? I don't ever use them. Okay, well, that answers that pretty concisely. Well, but what I do is I bring in somebody who does that. Okay, but you don't you get to choose when, you know, they lay it out and you go, I like that better than that? Oh, sure. I mean, I can say I don't like that kick sound. A lot of times we'll sample a kick from Colby's record or something that I know that I like, or I'll, uh. I'll play that thing. This is what I want. You know, I like, I like a snare that has some air in it, has some sp space and something... It can be shaped into into uh, 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 what I think is a good musical quality. Speaking uh, of musical quality, uh, something you said the first time we ever spoke, I think, and you repeated it on stage at the Road Rally, and then we talked about it at your studio on The Last Taxi TV, is that you've described your mixing style. Uh, also in the book, you talk about your mixing style as playing the console as if it's an instrument. Uh, I'm a big fan of that approach as well because it adds layers of dynamics and personality and musicality to the record. Uh, you literally become like the fifth Beatle, as it were. Um, right. that, and, you know, I think it's important that, that what that means is, you know, have a number of faders on, on available to you. Even if you're in the box, make sure that you that you put enough, uh, some, some faders in record so you can move the drums and the bass at the same time, or move the guitars and the keyboards. So it's not just one thing, but you'll you when you're doing it, you'll you'll move the guitar. It might go up in volume, and then naturally the the keyboard, if it was a live session, might play a little louder too. And then you go back to the drums and move all that stuff. So I, yeah, that's what I like doing. If I have I like a pro control, I'll put a, a number of faders in in record and. and able to move things so back in the days of rumors automation was just starting to come to the forefront wasn't very good certainly not nearly as good as today's automation um, nowadays that automation is really good when you mix a record for instance colby's records do you automate every pass uh, so that you don't have to go back and try and recreate what you loved about the last pass, or do you shoot from the hip and, and start fresh with each pass of the mix? Well, what I always did, what well, we did for Tusk, too, we had automation. But I realized if you, it's a really evil trap if you, if, you, if you try to get the kick and the drum set, and then you try to build everything else around that, it becomes a big static mess. And... And so we never did it. So I would always say, I'm going to do it like we did on Rumors, where everybody played a fader, you know, or we had all the faders marked with a start point. And and, and so when we started to do the mix, like we would we wouldn't we would do a, a full a fresh mix, removing every fader, and let the and let the uh, let the computer capture all the movement of all the faders. Mm -hmm. And then if we got a good one, we were didn't screw it up. Then I would, then I would fix the fixes that were needed in there. So I would, I, I can say I would start with, I would usually set a start point with all the faders where I know that that's a good start point. Move everything at once. Try to play it. You know, if you need to get the janitor in to to push up a kick 
or mute something and a little and somewhere along there you know keep making it be dy dynamic right and then the janitor tells all his friends i mixed the fleetwood mac album <laughs> right <laughs> His, and then you sell three more records. That's right. His claim to fame. That's right. And his family members all bought one. There you go. Um, let's do a little gear chit chat here. Uh, what's your favorite console to record on? Uh, well, API or Neve. Okay. Uh, vintage or modern? Vintage. Okay. That's, that's kind of another trick question. I'm going through that right now, trying to decide what... What, to, what would be best to put in these Sausalito, these classical Sausalito studios. It used to be in the Sausalito record plant, used to have, when I did rumors there, it had an API console. So then I started thinking, well, if I pick an API console because because Ken did, did rumors on it, a lot of people might say, well, I don't like that console. So I've been trying to figure out what do I get that's, that's going to be a, as friendly as I can be for as many of people. Right. So, um, maybe, I, 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 could we have a survey? Yeah, well, I was gonna, yeah, actually, I've got, you know, easily a hundred people or more in the chat room right now, so let's ask them, everybody. So, Ken is redoing the Record Plant Sausalito, which is like one of the 10 most legendary studios probably in the country, uh, possibly even the world. It's got a great history, great sound, and he did rumors there. The majority of rumors was done there. 44, 44 great records were done there. Songs in the Key of Life, Prince's first album, uh, um, Huey Lewis, uh, Grateful Dead. A lot of great records were done there, 44. So Ken put together a group of investors and he bought that facility, which had all the equipment sold off at some point. The place was shut down, but the building was still there. So he's bringing it back to life, pretty much true to what it was back in the day, but he's got this dilemma of, do I put in a Neve and an SSL? Um, or do I put in, you know, try and match the original gear from back in the day? And as he said, he, he doesn't want to stick a console in there that's true to what it was back in the day and have people going, yeah, I don't really want to work on an API. So can I have a plus one in the chat room from everybody that would put in the API uh, versus, yeah, if you would prefer the API uh, or vintage of any sort. I, mean, I know most of you don't have experience on an API probably, but... Do you think Ken should put in the original style console or should he go with something modern in the context of a room that is vintage? Right. I'm waiting. The, res the results are rolling in as we speak. So, uh, you know, these, these rooms are great. They sound, we're going to, we're going to change them a little bit and update them a little bit, uh, but they're very iconic and they have a look and they're, but, you know, they had these. They used to have big, gigantic uh, monitors made by Tom Hidley. They're big, uh, like the Augsburger type, double fifteen speakers. And most people now mix on uh, near fields. So it kind of the control and what it sounds like doesn't need to be as specific as it was when we were, when we did rumors. So that's that's another aside. Right. Well, I can tell you that you're going to leave today's episode being as confused about this issue as you were when you arrived, because it looks to be about even money on people going go vintage or go modern. 
Um, well, okay. So let me give everybody a little bit of information. If you go vintage, there's you got to get these boards that are 20, 30, 40 years old, and you probably have to go back and recap all the capacitors, uh, replace all the capacitors that have dried out. You probably have to clean the, the knobs and things with a solvent. Basically, going to be about could be ten thousand dollars of maintenance on to bring a board up to reliability for a few years. Right. Whereas some companies like API still make the same board that they made before, and in fact, it's cheaper now. You know, uh, so I could buy a brand new API, and it would have almost the same sound, almost identical to what it was forty years ago. Mm. I could also buy a brand new Neve. And it would be very similar to aspects of, of a Neve board. So I could also buy an API board, one of the new APIs, and have that API sound. So there's, a, there's an argument to go with a new, and there, there would be five-year warranty on the new consoles, as opposed to five years of some maintenance guy going in every day for whenever the next problem happens. Um. So... So I have this. I had this idea. I, I thought, what if you could have um, a bunch of, let's say, a, a third of an API console and a third of a, a Neve console in the same room, and let's say 16 channels of Neve, 16 channels of, of API, and 16 channels of uh, SSL, all going into a Pro Tools rig because really what happens is the Pro Tools rig is the receiver of all the audio. So, and really when you're going through, when your microphones are going through uh, the console channels, an API has a, one sound and Eve has another sound. I like both of them. So I thought, what if we, we could design a studio that have all these choices? And I, I think I figured out how to do it now where you'd be able to have 16 channels of an API 16 channels of a Neve, going through Pro Tools, and you could put your strings through the, through the Neve, and you could put your electric guitars and drums through the API. Kind of, kind would, of an interesting thing. Would they be treated like sidecars on wheels that you could use yes. or not use? Okay, that's yeah, that's exactly. I was, I didn't want to use the word sidecar because I didn't, didn't want to confuse people, but it would almost be one sidecar, or they, people call it buckets too. Right. Sidecar of API, sidecar of, of the Neve. So some guy in, in Studio A could say, I want the two, AP, uh, the two SSL sidecars. I just want an SSL console to do the, my record on. I and think they that's would all a... go through this Pro Tools called S6 or S3, which is a very modern uh, mix matrix where you can control, you, you can have your stereo mix and you can have 5.1, 7.1 Amos monitors in your same room. I think that's the solution. I think that's a great idea. So you're getting a lot of question marks from your listeners. No, no, no. They're, they're all giving you agreement on it. Uh, yeah, I, I'd say you have pretty much consensus. You know, half the room said old, half the room said new. And when you mention this, people are like, yeah, that's a great idea. Um, so there you go. And I like the having the control surface be, um, you know, something that's static that stays in the room all the time. That's pretty, that's sound neutral, if you will. 
you know, from Pro Tools, right. that makes sense. Um, I think it's a great idea. I cannot wait to go up there with you and check this out. Literally, since we talked a few days ago, and uh, you said I could join you on one of the trips up there while it's under construction. It's like all I've been able to think about. I can't wait to go. Um, what's we your? Just took, we just took the uh, the roof off of it. We didn't take the roof off. We redid the roof. We took all the HVAC units off the roof. Took nine of them off, and uh, we're basically re uh, well, redoing all that stuff, and then we're going to replace the HVAC units with new, modern, quiet ones. But then it occurred to me, why don't I put solar on it too? Oh, that's a good idea. So, so I, I called Tesla, and they're they're going to give me a quote out for solar on the on the building. Wow, that's a great idea. Are the outbuildings, the residences, still on the property? No, they never were. They oh. were. Oh, okay. They were, they were miles away. Oh. There was two two houses up, oh, six seven minute drive from. Uh, Sausalito, we don't have any houses now, but we're not sure that Destination Studios, like Caribou Ranch in, in uh, Colorado, uh, was very big for a while, but people basically don't want to go hang out anymore. There's some really nice hotels in Sausalito, so if people wanted to get out of L.A. and go up there, we would provide them with uh, discounts on hotels. Um, yeah, it's great. Uh, I, that's funny. When I read the book, I had the feeling, uh, I don't know why I didn't pick up on that, but I thought that the residences, uh, were on the property, like, you know, walking distance to the studio. So that's good to know. So what's your favorite, um, do you have any favorite pieces of outboard gear that if you were, you know, uh, stranded on desert Island somewhere, are there two or three pieces of outboard that you would have to have with you? Well, on Desert Island, obviously not. But uh, you know, I like I like the old stuff, eleven seventy sixes. I like the LA two A's. Uh, microphones are, are I'm the biggest the biggest fan of microphones. So I'd love to have some tubes, as many tubes as I could have. Uh, that'd be my outboard gear. Um, I so. remember when you showed me uh, just to bring you guys in the chat room or watching the show up to speed. Uh, Ken bought. Uh, most or all of the equipment from Fantasy Studios in San Francisco to use for the gear uh, at Record Plant Sausalito. And when I was at his studio back in March, he opened up this mic cabinet to show me some of the mics. And there were a couple of Sony ECM 377s in there. So uh, I made him promise me that if they ever sell those, that I've got first crack at it. It's one of my all-time favorite mics. You just can't find them anymore. Um, so, yeah, yeah. 37As. Uh, yeah, there's 37As, 37Ps, and a 377. Personally, most people like the 37s. I like the 377, which was the newer version. It actually required a battery. I think it took a 9-volt battery. But the sound of that microphone on electric guitars, like a, a Strat going through a twin with a 377 on it, is just one of my favorite all-time sounds. I, I can literally like be in the grocery store and hear a record and look up at the ceiling, the speakers, the ceiling, and go, "Oh, I bet you they did that with a 377." It's just a weird little fetish I have for that mic. Um, what's your? Uh, what well, are you your... know, you're you're a mic lover like me, so yeah, you know, and I and I've, I I used to have all these mics when I was a, a Wally Hyders. I had 
RCA 77s, RCA 44s, you know, ECM 50 Sonys, and all these different types of mics that I know, I know what I would, you know, my second engineer used to ask me, you know, I, I was kidding, but we had a, we had a, a, a chair with a Nagahide seat, and, and we were doing percussion on that at Fleetwood, and he asked me, like, Sire, what would you like to, uh, how would you like to mic the Nagahides? I suppose well, 87 of course <laughs> oh man yeah it's a great default microphone when you, you can't think of anything else you can always you know it's like 80% sure that the 87 is going to work on it um, yeah you know you know what it does and, and you know the C37 might work too yeah depending on how much low end was coming off of that I'm very excited that you mentioned the Sony ECM-50 because I think you and I might be the only two guys still alive that really understand the value of that relatively inexpensive microphone. I, I've told the people watching the show many, many times that I used it on hi-hat. I love the sound of an ECM-50 on the high end of, of like a, a seven-foot grand piano. It sounds great. And people would look at me like, why are you dangling a lavalier microphone six inches over the high-end strings on the piano. Well, because it sounds better than an 87 there. Um, I used to take ECM-50s, wrap them in a little bit of foam and stick them in the uh, F-hole of a cello and they sounded great and you got some isolation out of it. So yeah, I love that microphone. Yeah, it's great. So that, that professor actually asked me about the ECM-50, like why did I have it there? And I said, well, it's, you know, it, it, I, I use it on live guitars uh uh joni mitchell and it was great because i could i could uh, i didn't have to put a microphone on joni when she was playing her acoustic guitar i hope that she she couldn't move she could stay in one place on it right. i put the ecm 50 in there and, it, and it's there it's got a really good bottom if, if anything probably too much bottom inside the hole but it you know that it, it misses a lot of the pa and and it sounds great put yeah. that up with a with a direct or something in here you're gold. Um, I'm going to ask you two more questions and turn it over to the folks in the chat room. Let them start asking some questions. Um, what's your default first go-to vocal mic when, yeah, just, you know, do you have one that you would normally put up and try first before you try other stuff? Well, is that live or in the studio? Uh, studio. I could go with a tube. I, I have this uh, a really great mic. It's a CMV563 Neumann, and it's made in the 60s. And it's a tube mic, and it's got a couple different capsules. And uh, uh, I use it on almost all of Colby's records. But uh, it's it's kind of like sounds a little more focused than a, than a U47. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, I haven't seen that, Mike. Do you have it over at your studio? Yeah. Next time I'm over, make sure you show it to me. I want to see it. I, I've never even heard of it, so I'm I'm really curious about yeah, that. It's, it's got a, it's got like one of those uh, what do you call them, bottle mics? So oh. CMV CMV five six three. Is it the one they call the Hitler bottle? I don't know. <laughs> but it, it looks like the, the blue bottle microphone, uh, you know, the blue, the more recent manufacturer makes, where it's got a big body on it, then like a little tiny neck with a thing about the size of a golf ball that sits on top of it. Yeah, or maybe a lollipop. 
up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I have used one of those. I didn't know the model number on it. And I remember uh, I, I was producing three tracks for a taxi member that got signed to DreamWorks back in like the mid nineties, I think. And I could only do three tracks because taxi was my full-time job. But we we're at the studio in Burbank where they did the theme song to the TV show Friends. And the assistant engineer said, what do you want to use in a vocal mic? And I saw that thing and I said, you know, I've never used one of those, but I've heard great things about it. And he said, don't use it. And I said, why? He said, just trust me, don't use it. And I said, eh, come on. So we put it up on the vocalist. It sounded amazing. I mean, it was breathtaking how good this thing sounded. And uh, sure enough, a couple months later, we needed to fix a couple vocal parts, not in that studio. We could not match the sound of that microphone. That's why he was telling me, don't use it. It sounds so good, you'll never be able to punch in on that track. And he was right. Mm. Yeah, it, it's not, not the best reason to not use a mic to sound unbelievable. Right. I, I remember loving the top end on that microphone is unlike the top end I've ever heard on anything before. It, it was like really bright and present without being sibilant. It, it was like silky on the top end, just wonderful microphone. Uh, um, I'll tell you, I'll give the, the listeners a couple of choices. Uh, nice, a really good microphone that sounds almost as good as uh, that microphone is a Shure uh, 827. It's a condenser made by Shure and it's just great. I had to, I had to punch in on some of Colby's vocals somewhere else and I had to use the Shure A27 and it was, it sounds terrific. I'm going to have to check one of those out. Only, never... I think it's only 800 bucks, 700. Wow. I've never even heard of that one either. Um, yeah. You know, most guys, oh, you're, you're younger than me. Only you by know? a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're certainly showing your age here. <laughs> uh, we definitely, I mean, you were, like probably two or three years ahead of me on the, uh, you know, when you started in your career. What year did you start uh, working at, at Wally's? 70, 71. Yeah, I started at Criteria late 74, I believe. So yeah, you're like three years ahead of me. But yeah, I think we grew up, you know, with similar equipment around us, but I've never heard of, of a Sure 827, but I'm going to be checking oh, it's it. A, it's a fairly new one. Oh, okay. going to check that out after the show. <laughs> It's funny, yeah, normally you put two people or two guys together, they're liable to talk about like sports or something, put us in a room and we just sit there and talk about microphones all night. Um, okay, one last question for me and then it's the audience's turn. Um, do you have a particular, like a go-to reverb type that you like? And if so, what is your like starting out decay time? I like uh, Reverb One on Pro Tools. Okay. And I have that at I think about uh, um, sixty or seventy. I, I've got a preset, so I never even look at it anymore. Sixty-seven, sixty or seventy uh, milliseconds on the pre-delay. And I have to I have to look and see, but I know that I have a, a pre-delay of seventy milliseconds. Yeah. Always. Yep. This is my, my go-to pre-delay to, to break it loose from the vocal or whatever it is. So it has a sort of a separation from the, the reverb has separation. Right. 
let me pop open a couple questions that people asked in the chat right before we get started. And the rest of you guys uh, type the word question in all caps and follow it with your actual question so I can scan it easily in the chat room. Um, so Anne House asked, if you were making uh, records, those records now, the records that you did back in the day, with digital gear and all the options that are available, would that substantially change your production choices or would you attack the record in the same way even though you're working in the digital realm? I would attack it the same way. I think it's all about the microphones and what you're, what the sound you get going in, the analog sound. And I would uh, try to capture it in the highest resolution I can uh, for Pro Tools. I like, you know, get up there at... Uh, um, what am I going black? 120? Oh. Yeah, I'm going black, but but higher than higher than 441, higher than 8082, 96k. I mean yeah. 96 96 24. If you can afford the real estate of using that much headroom, if your Pro Tools is fast enough, right? So uh, yeah, but it just to me, it's all about the analog, what you capture the sound. With and uh, so I would do it the same way always. And then you know, if you go through real and real outboard, if you have real outboard gear, so if you, in other words, if you had a, a, a real 1176, you could send, send the send the mic through. See, I like to do, I don't like to use many, many plugins uh, after the fact, only for mixing, but if I when I'm capturing a microphone, I'm using a, a real tube going through a real uh, 1176. Right. So I stay in analog as long as I can, and I compress it, and I actually put a little EQ on the vocal. So you compress the vocal a little bit, so you control the vocal, so you get a better dynamic range, and then you EQ the, the, the sound. So uh, that's what I do. So I keep it in analog as long as I can, then to go into digital. Um, uh, Spring Lavelle asked the question, uh, which mics you use on Colby, but you already answered that. Um, do you use any effects on Colby's vocals? Mm, not really. I mean, you know, of course, a little little chorus or once in a while, but most of the time she likes to be pretty natural sounding. So I would just go with the tube microphone and the, the uh, Reverb one, a reasonably small room, and the, the um, 72 millisecond pre delay. Uh, do you think, this is another question from the audience, do you think San Francisco is going to come back as a music center? You know, I'm, I'm gambling. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping it. The, the whole reason I, I bought the building 10 years ago, I found it sitting there kind of almost abandoned, and, and I, and I, at the, around the same time, I realized that Wally Hyder's, where I recorded Paul McCartney and a number of other, other people, was gone. They were turned into restaurants. And I said, when the hell did that happen? <laughs> and then I was, around the same time, I went to Austin, Texas. I used to go to this place called the Texas Opry House and watch, watch bands. And it was a really cool, old, funky place. And so the last time I was there, I, I, go, I drive over to the Texas Opry House, and I can't find it. And I'm going, what the hell? And I finally found it. And it was a CompuServe store. Wow. And they completely paved everything. And they, it was just, they tore it down. It was like 
what the hell are you guys thinking? You couldn't have done anything with the building? You know, I don't know. So then I said, at that, after that point, I thought, well, two things I would have liked to save, uh, I did. So now I've saved the record plan. Now that I've saved it, I, now I'm trying to figure out what, now what do I do? Right. <laughs> you know? So now I've got to figure out, hopefully I'm making the right decision to, you know, to to make it more more modern, but it's still got such good sound in there. Uh, we're going to make it flexible. We're going to have some curtains and, and, and carpets, and you can pull them up, and you can change the, the studio to make it brighter or more live and uh, and have some different types of gear in there to, uh, to make any kind of record you want. Uh, are you keeping, remember all the crazy stuff on the walls, very 70s looking uh, art on the walls? Is any of that stuff still there? It's all still there. Are you going to keep I'm, it? I'm, I'm bound and determined to, to keep as much of it. My, the, the chief engineer we got from Fantasy has, has, been, uh, has been lobbying to get that the, the stuff off the walls. But he says the modern artists aren't going to want it. And I think he and I are completely just in disagreement on that. Yeah, well, so, buy him some bell bottoms and maybe he'll change his mind. <laughs> uh, which, he, he asked me if I would, and one of the walls has this uh, uh, cutout of a piano player playing a big nine foot grand and it was head back and his hands up in the air and it's this cutout and, and the cutout is, there's a mirror behind it, but it's really, it's really cool, you know, it's it looks cool. So, uh, to me, it's rock and roll. It's like the difference between a, you know, if I wear a jacket out somewhere and a rock and roller wears a jacket, his jacket's got a sequence on it. I always wonder where do you get sequin jackets? Right. If you want how do you dress like a like a rock star if you yeah. if you're not? Anyway, that to me that wall makes it look like a rock star wall. Yeah, you, you know? know, I mean, it, it's. Studios today are very pristine, very, they look like, you know, like a NASA control room or something. Um, I think that having that vintage look, that's the appeal. It's almost not worth doing what you're doing if, if you don't maintain as much of that vintage. That's the cool thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I told, I told my, my investors that if we don't want to keep that stuff, let's just, let's screw it. Let's go buy a building, just a cheap warehouse that we can build a couple of studios in if that's what we want to do. Right. But wh why would you do that? I wouldn't get into studio business right now if, if you paid me. But this vintage, this old thing, it's got it's got some character to it. Absolutely. And are so you, I, you're also considering using it as sort of a museum, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So we want to really pay homage to the, the you know, 60s, Haight uh, Ashbury, the, the you know, uh, what do you call it? love and uh, uh, what do you what was what was it called? The love and uh, uh, peace and love. Yeah, the love generation or whatever. Oh, it was. summer of love. Yeah. So, I, and I'd like to kind of, you know, Ampex uh, Ampex made the first multi-track tape recorder, right. and uh, and after uh, Dean after. Uh, uh, it's not Dean Martin. Uh, um, who, who sang White Christmas? Um, Dean Crosby. Dean Crosby. Right. I got it. 
<laughs> and Bing, Bing Crosby invested in Ampex and they, they went to multi-track and Ampex was right down the road from uh, uh, from Sausalito in uh, Redwood City and you know and DigiDesign's up there and you know the whole world revolves around Pro Tools so um, yeah definitely uh... so yeah we're going to have a museum and uh, and uh, and uh, you know I'd like to offer tours through there we have about uh 15 people a day come come to the front of the building to take mm-hmm. a picture in, on, uh, in front of the iconic front doors of the place. Well, there you go. You should start charging them 20 bucks a shot and start paying off that solar panel from uh, Tesla. <laughs> there you go. Uh, what's your favorite microphone on nylon string guitar? Uh, I think It might be. It might be for me. It might be a 451 AKG, and maybe a paired up with a 414. Or, or yeah, I, I'll go with those two. Okay, sounds like wise choices. Um, what should you, I'm not sure I understand this question. What should you have or not have on the master fader or aux? Well, you should probably have compression. Uh, on your mix bus, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. Um, question. Did Ken find himself playing marriage counselor while making rumors? Did the album come close to not being finished due to the relationship strains within the band? It did. I mean, they were all breaking up. But, I mean, I was just, I was a lazy, lazy producer. I didn't want... I used to try to say to them, if you guys, because they're all, all the, all the couples are breaking up. So I would say, whoever's not breaking up today, let's, let's you guys work. The other guys go out and fight. <laughs> oh but man. Stevie gets most of the credit for that. She, she talked to her, her lawyer and he said, you know, if you guys keep it together, um, you're going to probably break up anyhow, but if you keep it together, um, and make as good a record as the White Album, you will never have to work again. You'll be millionaires. She stormed into the studio and she said, all right, we'll have to knock it off. <laughs> she, said, she said, I want everybody to stop fighting because we all, we all know sooner or later we're probably going to break up, but let's just finish this record and get on with it because I don't want to be poor anymore. Wow, great advice. Yeah. Uh- What's your opinion of the clone microphone kits? I don't know. Um, I've never used one either, but I'm tempted to. Uh, they look great, you know, like the Stephen Slate stuff where, you know, uh, an 87 can become 10 different mics depending on the switch that you throw. Um, I like that idea. I actually have the Stephen Slate yeah. microphone. But all my, uh, my Mac, my Pro Tools rigs are more older more of the uh, vintage and so they won't run a Stephen Safe plug-in right but the, the, the actual mic the Stephen Safe puts out sounds amazing oh that's good to know it's really bright and sizzly and it's got openness and and that's very cool so uh, I think it would be intriguing to hear it be a Telefunken 250 or something here here, here supposedly what that is sound like 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I've heard good stuff. I've seen good stuff online about that one. Um, I know that um, my friend Rob Shirelli's former company, Gage Instruments, made one, and people have said good things about that. Uh, here's a question from Darren Moss. Wants to know, what was it like working with Paul McCartney? Uh, well, as you can imagine, it was pretty, it was pretty great. Um, I did a string, a string date for him for his Venus and Mars record. Right. And I, I was scared shitless. I hadn't done many string dates. And, uh, and so they, his, his engineer, Alan O'Duffy said, I want Ken to do it. So I was down at the other studio setting up and, uh, and Paul comes in and looks at me and says, hello, Paul McCartney. <laughs> and I, I went, yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm sorry, Paul, if you're listening. What a jerk, right? Oh, man, I, I think that's hysterical, <laughs> Paul McCartney. Yeah, I know. <laughs> what do you, I mean, what do you, what should I have said? I don't know, you know? No, I, I, I think it's you It's an honor, it's honor to meet you. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah, the stuff that Who that... Who was a walrus, you know? <laughs> The stuff that that guy has done and seen inside studio walls, you know, just phenomenal. Um, okay, I'm looking. I'll tell you what, about something about that section. Yeah. Session when he was he was recording in Studio One at Hyder's. We were down in Studio Four, uh, but he, I walked in. And he was the band was playing. Danny Lane was playing the, the his regular uh, uh, whatever the band was called then but he went out and he he he, he said no, no no not that way not that way and finally he sat down to the drums and played the drum kit played it perfectly it sounded like rocky rocky raccoon or something played the guitar and then played the bass everything he just took everything about every instrument out of people's hands and said this is how i want it wow and he was probably nicer about doing that than Lindsay was Oh yeah. <laughs> was he as as kindly a gentleman as he appears to be in his interviews? Yeah, he was. He was great. He used to. I'll tell you another part. There, across the street from Studio One, there was a parking lot at Quang and Selma, and uh, he always rented a, a, Cor, a Corvette, a pink Corvette or something. Yeah. And uh, and pulled it in the parking lot one day, and and we we would have the Studio One doors open. He pulled into the, uh, the Corvette in the parking lot, and there was a guy uh, hanging a big sign. Right? He was, I don't know what you call him, but he had one of the big billboards, and he was putting up the, the, the billboard sign on the billboard. And he was like Hispanic or something, and, they, and he waves at Paul. I recognize him, raises, waves at him. Paul spends 20 minutes talking to, the, to this guy. Eventually, he comes down and standing with Paul and Linda, and he just seemed like one of the guys. Wow. So, I was impressed. And so you should have been. Sounds great. Uh, here's a tough question. Who was the greatest musical artist that you've ever worked with? Joni Mitchell? I'd like to say Joni Mitchell. I mean, it's probably Paul McCartney, but Joni Mitchell. I, I mean, I worked with Crosby Stills. I worked with uh, um, uh, Loggins and Messina. I remember Loggins and Messina. Uh, uh, Messina was chewing 
Kenny Loggins out just yelling at him for being not, not creative or something. It was just very abusive. Yeah. But, I mean, I worked with Grace Slick, and, um, but I have to say I was most impressed with Joni Mitchell. What was it about her that impressed you? Uh, her personality? Her... Yeah, she's just so articulate. I, I recorded her for like two months, uh, the Miles of Miles album, and then and I was in love with her and afterwards. She she was so kind and so funny and talking about articulate plumbers and, and uh, the Arbutus tree and uh, just, and she has such great harmonies. I had no well, idea like said, that, you, that you worked with her. I'm sure I've read that in your bio or something, but it never... I didn't get any credit on the, the, the album. The Henry Louis, the motherfucking uh, uh, producer, he, he didn't give me any credit. Yeah. Uh, he took everything. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it's funny, people, uh, they don't understand. Back in the, those days, maybe it still happens, but, you know, back uh, in the 70s, it was not infrequent that you would work on a record. Sometimes somebody would come to Miami, I would work on a record, they would be on tour. I would work on a record for two, three, four days, maybe a week with them, and then they were back, back out on tour and your name never showed up on the record. So I think that sometimes people don't believe me that I worked with some of the people that I tell them I did. Well, I'm sorry you didn't get credit on that record because what a great record that was. It is, I have outtakes, it's amazing. I, I put my own best of Joni Mitchell uh, together and it's, uh, I think it's better than the other one because I got a lot more for talking. And she was, she just tells stories and makes you just, and she was doing a lot of outdoor amphitheaters and I had, uh, really, really great audience mics on her. And I had them up in the mix and you could feel the cold night air, you know, it, uh, wow. it was uh, quite a, quite an adventure. So um, I really liked, I really liked engineering. I loved doing all these tricky things with microphones. I used to make the guys hang, hang the audience mics and really hard to, to uh, get to places. And, uh, you know, I think Fleetwood kind of ruined me because I could have been just an engineer and been maybe the greatest engineer, <laughs> but not everybody wanted me to produce them. Oh, that's okay. Uh, did you? This is a question I'd actually written down and didn't ask you. Today, when you produce a record, uh, do you still sit behind the console and engineer, or do you have somebody else engineer for you? I have someone else engineer. Is it tough not being able to, uh, I mean, do you like constantly lean over their shoulder and grab knobs or do you leave them alone? I usually leave them alone. I've, I've, I've learned that, you know, it's hard to engineer and produce at the same time because I'm, when I'm engineering, I'm thinking about that. Right. But, but if I have an engineer that I work with, I can always say, you know, could you brighten up those symbols at 10K, 12K or, you know, 40B at 12K or something? Yeah, and uh, compress that a little bit, and I, they like, oh yeah, yeah, good idea. So <laughs> I have to, per I have to engineer verbally. Well, next time we hang out, I want you to play me that Joni Mitchell stuff. Um, let's see, I'm looking for another question. I saw one fly by that I wanted to ask you, and now I'm scrolling to see if I can find it. Uh, here we go. Uh, have you used or had thoughts on the Neumann M149 tube mic and how it compares to your CMV 573? M, M, wait, M, uh, I don't know. I don't think I've used the M149. Yeah, I don't think That's, I have either. 
that's not the is that referring to the M49 the, the, the gold standard yeah yeah that's Barbara Streisand's mic of choice I believe right and, and she can pretty much afford any damn microphone she wants <laughs> oh that's a great sounding microphone but I don't think it's it necessarily has anything to do uh, over uh, the CMV or the U47 or any two. And you just have to know how to how to how to uh, use the microphone. I did, I did a I think I told you when I was here last time. I did a I I, I, I a guy had me fly out to Salt Lake City and I was going to speak to some engineers about whatever. And the studio guy that was the host of the thing was kind of cocky and I said you know what I said I'll put up I bet I can beat you on uh, you know whatever any mic you choose I'll beat you with this SM uh, 546 yeah. and he looked at me and he said you're on <laughs> so he had a girl come in and sing and he used I don't know what a 47 or something you know and I used the uh, the uh, 546 or the SM 56 and uh, but I, I, you know, I had her. I had her. I put a special pop filter on. I had her. Well, no, yeah, we used the same mics at the same time. So, but when I played it back for everybody, I put put it. I put them up on two faders, and unmarked. And I said, "You guys can move the two faders, and everybody pick what they want." They unanimously picked my microphone. Nice. I so, think it'd be an interesting uh, test sometime to take the same drum kit, the same position in the same room with the same drummer and have three different engineers at the same console picking different microphones and setting their own levels and compressors and EQs just to hear how different the same drummer, same kit, same room, same console would sound under you know, the hands or ears of, of three different guys. That would be fun to watch. Yeah, because a lot of a lot of it has to do with where you where you what the, the preamps are doing, yeah. mic pre's are doing. Like when I did the rumors, it, the API, the sound was so dead in the room. I had to, it, everything sounded tight and, and small, and so I found the best way I could do it. I I opened up the mic pre's until, and I just kept having to bring down the fader to get to still have it no, you know, it, having zero zero bu. So I, I kept opening up the mic pre, and the fader was almost at the bottom. And of course, you know, when the fader gets too close to the bottom, you're going to get distortion. Right. You know, but but everything I did, the faders were all the way down. You know, and had to ride it. But sometimes you can just do that. You know, you get the preamp really sing, and then you get a lot of air and more more. And you put a little compression on it. You can put, uh, add a little bottom end, and it, and it it's you could you could do some amazing things. Are you more of an EQ adder or an EQ subtractor? Adder. Okay. Uh, what are some of your favorite frequencies? Uh, let's take acoustic guitar. What would you boost on an acoustic? I'd probably boost 7 and 15, and I might boost uh, 800. Wow. You know, and you, know, cause you, you, know you can add more top if you have more bottom. Right. So, you know, depending on where the mics are sitting with the, with on the guitar, if he's got a new strings, he's using a pick, it's really bright, then you can get away with Then you might want to add bottom. There's nothing that sounds greater, but with an acoustic guitar, which has bulbous bottom and 
really sparked the top. <laughs> that that should be your your quote of your lifetime. Nothing sounds better than a, an acoustic guitar. It's got a bulbous bottom and a sparkly top. You're you're so right. I've just you never. Know, that that I, probably applies to other things in life too. <laughs> I've never heard anybody express it so eloquently. I knew I could count on you. There uh, you go. <laughs> oh man, I can't wait till this COVID crap is over. We can hang out, man. Every time I, I talk to you, it's just like you bring such joy to my life. We are definitely cut from similar cloth um, i heard i heard today that one of the news ladies said that it was last week the covid declined new cases declined every single day was that possible is that too good a news but i just heard it and i they didn't make a big deal out of it but was that here in los angeles yeah i, mean, I think it was seven interesting um and was that the number of deaths or the number of infections well, I'll definitely... either way, either was declining every day is good. Yeah. Oh man, I hope they uh, don't make us stay out of the office, stay at home, whatever, until it's down to zero. I mean, you know, the people I know that have been very afraid to venture out are even they're saying to me they're really getting uh, mentally squirrely from you know being trapped at home, and I, I haven't experienced any of that personally, but. I go out in the backyard a lot. Uh, I've been uh, trapping gophers all summer, and now I'm growing tomatoes and, and squash in the backyard. So like every half hour or so, I go out in the backyard, tend to my garden, or check the gopher traps. It's been keeping me busy. You, you want to know a more humane, humane way to, uh, to kill some gophers? What? You take your car and run a garden hose <laughs> from the muffler, from the exhaust pipe, down the hole. Um, I've heard of that before. I actually and you basically never see them again. They die down in their holes. The babies die. Everybody's gone. And I mean, <laughs> oh man, I I actually bought those things that look like a, a road flare, and they're made for they're called gopher killers or something like that. And you light it and you drop it down into the hole, then cover the hole, and and smoke will start. It, it's got a lot of sulfur in it so i'm pretty sure it has the same effect as the car exhaust and, and you see smoke yeah, coming it never out works i mean half the time it doesn't work for me <laughs> the, 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 this gopher goes the other direction and goes out one of their emergency exits right yeah putting a regular hose down there and flooding it with water doesn't work that much i know uh, no <laughs> but you gotta put the you know put the hose down it with the exhaust air and then just you know make sure that you seal up the hose with dirt so and just walk away and let it go for an hour. <laughs> oh, man. I got it. The other way to do it is you put those pellets on. But then my wife yells at me that says, you know, you're, some some other animal, innocent animal, is going to eat that eat that gopher and be poisoned. Um, somebody, so, somebody has a question not related to gophers, so I'm going to ask it. Uh, all right. Tips on how to record uh, great vocals aside from uh, having a great vocalist. Oh. Well, I guess uh, the thing is, get, I would use an inexpensive microphone like a Sennheiser um, 441. Yeah. So what I'm saying, 441, that has a good bottom. Use it. Use a, uh, use a dynamic mic, uh, any dynamic mic like an SM57, and, and put a pop filter on it and have the singer sing with their lips touching the pop filter. 
and you can get this extra bottom end from the dynamic, uh, from a cardioid, I mean a dynamic um, microphone it's called proximity effect. I usually put, put a pop filter, I'll put a rubber band around the pop filter so it stays on tight and then I'll, I'll slide the pop filter uh, out about half an inch. There's half an inch of air between the front capsule of a 57. Yeah. And then you get this dynamic, uh, this uh, proximity effect of bottom end, the vocal sounds bigger. Uh, most of the time I find the singers sing at too high of a register. So that's the one thing you do, take your singer and, and either uh, slow it down a little bit, uh, drop the key a half a step, and get them to, instead of their nervous, they're up here talking like this, and it doesn't sound good, but you get them down and hello, how are you doing? It's, it's automatically better. Yep, absolutely. You know, this is the kind of wisdom I worry a little bit when our generation of engineers ha have died off um, and it's just kids with computers and everything in are you the looking box. At me? What? Are you looking at me? No, I'm looking at all of us. I mean, come <laughs> on, you know, you and I've definitely lost friends who are contemporaries, maybe, you know, a, a few years older than us, but um, I, I worry that a lot of the art of this stuff, a lot of the uh, physics that play into recording will be lost because nowadays it's just so easy and and i don't mean to be that guy it's like oh you kids today but it's important to know about proximity effect and other just you know it, it's there's a lot of physics involved it's common sense physics it's not like you've got to be you know a, a phd in physics to do it but i i fear that the world is going to lose that and nobody will know how to record anything unless that's, it... what I, that's what i wanted that's what i think too and i think that's why i wanted to create a recording school school where we cover some of these topics and we we video them so they become they become a part of a world database yep like you know here, here's a here's a really good example of something i had somebody i was recording something and they wanted the the vocal to sound really tiny and so they 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 did the vocal and then they turned it down and i said that doesn't sound tiny i said it's you can hear the bottom everything is the same i said i said do it again and step back from the microphone 10 feet and they and they set, set the same thing they sang the same thing and the vocal sounded tiny mm. in perspective you know you could hear you could hear that it was a it was a further away and you know you have to capture that air it, and the reverb from the the, the reflections of the, from the walls but i mean that's just kind of common sense well you, know, you don't really it is to guys like us because somebody told us about it you know 40 years ago and then we we heard it and we learned to use it but that's what i'm saying is unless they're guys from our generation maybe there are 23 year olds out there that know this stuff and maybe i'm just wrong but it, it seems like everybody makes records with software and, and a lot of these things will get lost it, it's like um for digital photography you know anybody with an iphone can take great shots now and you can slap a filter on it um people that know how to use the right lenses and the right light with with um actual cellulose film yeah, you know. Right. You know who taught me about that? That uh, the small voice thing? Graham yeah. Nash, actually. Really? Uh, he was singing a song called, uh, I think it was called Page 43. 
uh, and he he had uh, there was some leakage from his uh, uh, from the David Crosby's vocal. Yeah, it was from his vocal, uh, and and they had they had had different vocal timing, and so there was this leakage that couldn't get out of the piano. We, they tried uh, putting the piano out of phase and trying to get rid of the leakage, and it was still you could hear the lead vocal. And the timing had changed, and it was like here was this vocal, and and Graham says, "Hey, wait a minute, put a mic on, turn it up." And he stood back away from the mic, and he said he sang a harmony to the lead vocal, and it was like syncopated. So, and it was like brilliant. <laughs> I, I I've worked with Graham Nashia for hundreds of hours actually on a CSNY album that never came out. Uh, uh -huh. It ended up being Stills Young, Long May You Run, but. Um, Graham Nash is one of the nicest guys in the world, and the guy could sing the phone book and make it sound beautiful. Right. Yeah. I've got to say, it was probably destiny that he and Crosby became friends and worked together, because I think uh, for uh, Crosby's lack of tact, let's say, uh, and, and Graham makes up for that because he's so sweet, and when the two of those guys sing together, it's magic. I mean, it's just one of those blends that you're lucky to hear three times in your life. Yeah, I agree with that. Anyway, uh, our time is up. And, and Ken, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. And I want to remind everybody watching the show, I, I don't think it's going to change Ken's life if you don't buy a copy of this book. But I'm telling you, if you like this kind of conversation and you're a studio nut, buy this book. If you haven't already read Making Rumors, buy that book. They're just, you won't be able to put them down. They are literally page turners. And I heartily endorse both of them, having read both of them. As a matter of fact, um, I read Rumors twice, once for pleasure and then once to work up some questions that I asked Ken at the road rally. Also, check out, Ken is the CEO, something we didn't talk about today. But he's the CEO of artistmax.org. That's A-R-T-I-S-T-M-A-X.org. It's a, um, he specializes in artist development. Um, taking young talent, people who are early in their careers, not necessarily young in age, but early in their careers, and developing them not just in the studio, but on many levels. Um, and he runs that out of his studio here in Southern California. So, uh, and, and it's going to be at the Record Plant Sausalito too. Oh, I didn't know that. That's incredible. We're going to start doing talent searches up there. Great. Well, and as soon as you get your room here in L.A. Um, wired and ready to go on the live broadcast, I definitely want to start doing like once a quarter, do a uh, taxi showcase night out of your place. Um, we'll do a Absolutely. live Absolutely, you got it, buddy. A broadcast from there. And once again, thank you, man. Always fun hanging out with you. It all, almost, I love my audience, but I don't care if anybody's there. It's just you and me, and I really enjoy it. And uh, I'm glad that these guys got to be flies on the wall today and ask some questions. So thank you, ladies I, and I, gentlemen. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Make me sick. <laughs> all right. Ken Calais, everybody. Talk to you soon, Ken. Take care, buddy. Bye-bye. I love that guy. <sighs> anyway, um, great. Thank you for hanging out. Glad you guys could join us and, and hear all that stuff. Um, you know me. I love talking engineering and microphones, but I especially like talking about it with him. He's awesome. Uh, let's see. I had a note or two for the end of the show. Let me find those.
Mm. Oh, like us and subscribe. If you're watching this and you're not a subscriber to the channel, subscribe so you get the alerts because we do taxi quarantini happy hours Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Uh, we do taxi TVs every Monday. Uh, next Monday is going to be a music library owner, and I'm not sure if he will allow me to tell you who he is or not, but basically he's been working now for like six weeks on a list of these are all the things you shouldn't do and some that you should do. So I have a feeling uh, this show is gonna be very powerful, so be right back here next Monday at four o'clock for another exciting episode of Taxi TV and see you guys very soon. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Ariana. Bye-bye.